Most deals with 50% LTV do not work. Either leverage is negative or it's very, very minimal. And the fact that the deal worked and it's generating about 5% cash on cash, that just speaks to the strength of the deal that even with a fixed rate that is higher than the initial rate, if you take a bridge loan with a fluctuating interest rate, if the deal still works at 50%, that's a conservative good deal, at least the way that we see it at Bule Capital. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the fourth season of Ready to Scale. I'm your host, Ellie Perlman. Real estate investing is not rocket science, but it's not a fairy tale either. It's an incredible investment vehicle that builds and grows wealth. I have done it, and this is why so many of the wealthiest people in America and in the world, actually, invest in real estate as well. Listen in every week to learn about all the different real estate asset classes, which strategies experienced and successful investors use to live their best lives and the processes to do it. Don't reinvent the wheel. Just listen in every week to grow your knowledge along with me and to move your finances to a place where you can live an extraordinary life. This show is sponsored by my company, Blue Lake Capital, where we help passive investors grow their wealth through large multifamily investments and funds. To learn more about my company and invest in with me, visit www.bluelake-capital.com. Welcome to Ready to Scale Season 4. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Ask Me Anything. I'm Ellie Perlman, the CEO and founder of Blue Lake Capital. And today, it's very exciting for me. This is the first time that we've been doing something like this when we basically answer any questions that anyone you know has about us, the market, deals that we're doing, etc. And so just, you know, a few words about me and the company. So I founded the company several years ago. I'm originally from Israel. And so I used to be a real estate attorney and then realized that I wanted actually to be on the buying side. And so I moved to the US, went to MIT, got my MBA degree, and shortly after founded Blue Capital. And we are owners and operators of multifamily properties. We've owned and managed about 3,300 units since inception. We like to be in the Sunbelt areas, class B value add. And that's what we do. We buy assets with investors. We renovate the units. We improve the exteriors of the assets. And then we sell them after three to five years. We love working with investors. And the goal of today's session is basically to answer questions. Specifically in today's market, I know there's a lot going on. And some of you have expressed you know, an interest in kind of talking about some of the interesting you know, aspects of buying and managing real estate. And so if you have any questions, feel free to you know, add it to the chat and I'll make sure to address it. And we already have some questions that I would like to address. And of course, the first one is around interest rates. Obviously, this is something that, you know, it's on everyone's minds. And we know what the Fed's, you know, what they're doing right now, where, you know, interest rates just keep going up with the intention of fighting inflation. And so the question, and and let's see if we can get the question here that we got from some of the people who were interested in being part of this and, and asking some questions. So the first one is that it looks like the feds will increase rates again. 
what do you think is going to be the ongoing impact on multifamily investing? And that's a great question because we all know that the feds, they're still going to increase interest rates. And actually today we're recording this live. It's November 2nd, noon Eastern time at 2 p.m. They're going to have an announcement meeting and have an announcement about increasing rates again. So the impact, it kind of depends on whether you already bought an asset or whether you're buying now. If, you know, for anyone who's already bought an asset, if they bought it at a fixed rate, there's not going to be an immediate impact, direct impact. It's more going to be indirect. So indirectly, and that's, you know, relevant across the board, it means that cost of services are going to increase. Payroll is going to increase because interest rates are going to go up. And so operating the assets might be more expensive than originally underwritten. If you bought you know, an asset, let's say three or four years ago, when you couldn't really predict that interest rates are going to go up that much in a, such a short period of time. Now, if you bought an asset at a, you know, if you put bridge debt, and if basically the interest rate hasn't been fixed and it's fluctuating, then you probably, it, it would impact your cash flow because obviously the higher the interest rate, the higher the debt service. And normally when you do buy an asset, you buy a cap, meaning it's kind of an insurance that you pay for that you basically say, okay, if interest rates, let's say right now I'm buying it at a three cap. And we'll remember those, you know, sweet days when we can buy an asset for let's say sofa plus or, you know, any rate that is fluctuating. And so basically when you do that, then you're buying a cap saying, okay, right now I'm buying at three cap. If interest rates are going to go up, I'm going to pay the higher rates, but up to a four cap or four and a half or whatever you know you choose. And obviously, the lower the interest rates, the higher the cap payments. And so once you hit that cap, then you know that it cannot go above that. So that's going to be the impact on assets that have been purchased, let's say years ago or a few months ago. For assets that you're buying right now, it depends how you behave as an owner, as a sponsor. So right now, we like to buy assets on a fixed rate because we don't want the increase in rates impact the cash flow of the assets that we're buying. And if interest rates are going to go down, there's always the possibility of basically placing new debt on the property and refinancing. But it's you know another way to do it would be to buy a cap and then underwrite to the cap, meaning assuming that from day one, you're already hitting the cap. And so if there's enough cash flow, then you know you're already underwriting to the worst case scenario. But right now we like to stick with fixed rate, usually agency debt. So whatever we're buying today, the future interest rate hikes are not going to impact the debt service because you got a fixed rate. And so if interest rates are going to go up, you know, to 9%, which I hope it's not going to get there. And I don't think we will. But if we do, and you locked in at a 6% interest rate, then it doesn't matter what happens, your payments are going to stay fixed. And that's one great way of making sure that you know, you're know not going to be impacted by the rising in interest rates. Now, mind you, this is the direct impact. As I've mentioned before, there's an indirect impact to the operating of the expenses of the assets. So increasing interest rates means that 
it's going to cost a little bit more to operate those assets. So whenever you're looking at a new deal, just make sure that the expenses, you know, it's pretty reasonable to think that they're going to be an increase in expenses. Just make sure that the sponsor took that into account when they were underwriting a deal. So that's the first question that we're kicking off the live session today. It's on everyone's mind. Everyone is worried about it. And in fact, one of the things that I've heard is that a lot of employees from bridge lenders are moving back to work for agency lenders because right now agency lenders are very, very busy. Everyone kind of wants to go back and get a fixed rate loan. But it's just industry you know, gossip, just so you know. Okay, so we're ready to move to the next question. What sort of investment opportunities are you going after? So right now, we're sticking with Class B assets in the Sun Building Strong Areas. And now more than ever, it's important to basically focus on the strength of the tenant base on the strength of the location. I do believe that the assets and the investments that are going to struggle are those that are going to struggle in a downturn, which is class C and you know B minus assets or class B assets in struggling areas. And they were underwritten pretty well years ago or maybe even six months ago. But you want to buy an asset in a strong area with very solid collections data and solid household income. And so you want to make sure that when you do that, you're making sure that once there's a downturn, your tenants are still going to pay rent. And that's very, very important. So that's in terms of the criteria, we're just more focused on a location than ever before. It was always important to us. And now it's even more important. So that's another good question. The next question that we got And again, this is on people's minds, and and maybe we can display the next question here. Do you have any prediction for multifamily real estate over the next year? That's a tough one. I think if you knew what was going to happen, you would have been a very, very successful entrepreneur and a real estate investor. But I do believe that interest rates will go down at some point, because otherwise, we're going to have a much bigger problem than just real estate. And so cap rates right now have expended... We've seen an expansion of 100 basis points from 3% to 4% cap rate, sometimes even higher than that. So the assets that we're buying right now are anywhere between four and four and three quarters. And so this is basically the environment of what we see right now. So I do think that probably towards Q3 and Q4 of next year, interest rates are going to go down a bit and cap rates are going to either stay stable or compress a bit. But I do not expect a change overnight. I don't expect interest rates to go back to what they were before, but I do see things slow down and calm down a bit. And so that's my prediction for 2023. Probably it's still going to be challenging when it comes to interest rates and expended cap rates, Q1 and Q2. And then towards the end of the two last quarters of 2023, it's going to get a little bit better. All right. So we are ready for the next one. Are you leveraging bridge lending or any short-term lending at this time? Or are you mitigating this crazy environment? And how are you mitigating this? So this is something that I just answered. But really quickly, we are focusing right now on fixed rates. So we're shying away from bridge lending. And the way to handle it, to navigate these crazy times, is to make sure that when we underwrite, we assume interest rates can be between 5 and 6%. 
fix. And if the deal still works, and we're talking about 47 to 55% LTV, and we're used to 65 to 75. But if the deal still works with such low LTV, with a fixed rate of basically five and a half to six percent, then we're looking at a good deal. And so it might sound crazy to underwrite to those numbers, but you have to understand that it does impact pricing. So pricing, you know, prices have gone down, and that allows us to actually make sure that we can make the deal work and it's cash flowing and cash flowing, you know, nicely five to six percent year over year. And so because lending has changed, we have seen, you know, assets that are sometimes 20 and 30 million less than what they would have been three months and two months ago, just because now that the debt has changed, it impacts, you know, pricing. So that's how we navigated. We stick to conservative underwriting, low LTV, fixed rate. And then based on that, if the deal still works, then we know it's a conservative deal. That's how at Blue Lake, you know, basically we navigate these times to make sure the deals can still work. Guys, you can always make a good deal and a bad deal in any part of the cycle. The question is how conservative you are. And if you are conservative enough, you can find the right deals and not be distracted. So when everyone was buying right and left, we were buying a little bit slower because sometimes it didn't make sense for us to overpay. And now when groups are a little bit shy, we say, hey, that's a great opportunity because we don't have that much competition and we are normally not the highest bid right now and we still get deals done. So we're kind of operating a bit differently than where the market is. And it's just been you know, working for us. All right. Do you worry about rents declining due to economic declines? Yes. So that's something we definitely look into. On one hand, we've seen some softening in rents. On the other hand, you have to understand that with inflation, rents are still going up across the board. On our portfolio, we have raised rents between 30 and 60%. We're not underwriting these numbers. We're underwriting very, very small one-digit number to be on a safe side. But rents are going up because we are in an inflationary environment. And so, yes, we are worried about it. We do not expect to push rents five, six hundred dollars, you know, on every asset. We're looking at much, much lower numbers. They're still gonna go up. We don't think, you know, they're going to be negative for years and years to go, but we do take into account a very moderate rent increases and B, we're also underwriting some concessions, meaning, you know, let's assume we need to give a month or two months for free to make sure the tenants come to our property. All of these things are normally part of our underwriting to make sure it's part of the conservative underwriting to make sure that we are basically buying the right investment. All right. Are investors actively looking for deals right now? That's a great question. Some groups are waiting on the sidelines for two reasons. One, they don't feel comfortable buying because they want to max leverage or for any other reason, they just want to hold off. The second reason is that they're waiting for fire sales. They're waiting to buy assets to basically bring rescue capital and buy assets from operators that are underwater. And so these are the two reasons why groups are sitting on the sidelines. I think that there might be some fire sales and deals to be done later next year. But I don't think you should wait and you know put your money in the bank and just wait for them because... With an 8.5% inflation, you're actually losing money by keeping it in your account. 
And so there's, again, you can make deals. They're not mutually exclusive. You can invest in deals today and you can wait to have a deal where it's risky capital, where you can buy deals, hopefully 80 cents on a dollar. We haven't seen that just yet. And so we're also waiting for that to happen. But that's, that's a good question, you know, if investors are still buying. And so either they hold for those two reasons or they're still buying like we are. We're still active in the market, but we're not offering the same prices that we could have offered you know, months ago because the debt terms, you know, everything has changed. It's you can offer more if you can get a 70 percent leverage. But when we're talking about 50%, then it really impacts the economics of the deal. It means more equity in the deal. And, you know, more equity means lower yields. The more you go, you stretch it out. And so that's why we need to adjust the price. So we are buying, but at much, much lower prices. And I can share with you that the deal that we have under contract right now, between the two deals in, in the portfolio, it would have been about 28 to 30 million more if we bought it at a 3% cap environment. And right now it's, so this is an insane, you know, savings for us. I do think we will be able to refinance, but nobody can, of course, promise that or really, you know, we're not including this in the underwriting, but this is the goal to wait patiently, get fixed rate, low LTV. Then when the property is increasing value because the NOI increases, you refinance. And that's basically the play here. All right. Can you talk about your new acquisition? How and why were you able to get a deal done? Okay, yeah. So the recent acquisition we have right now is called the Stonebrook Portfolio. And these are two assets in very, very strong locations. We're talking about two assets, one outside the research triangle. The other one is basically in Vinings, which is adjacent to Buckhead. Very, very strong submarkets in Georgia and North Carolina. Because like I've mentioned before, we are very, very focused on the strength of the tenant base. We want to make sure that tenants are paying, that they don't have any economic hardships. And just by being in areas where, for instance, in Vinings, the average household income is 166000 These type of tenants, these are the tenants that we want. You have million-dollar homes around the property. That's the area we want to be in, especially now. And so the purchase price, as I mentioned, was adjusted to today's environment. We're putting fixed rate on both assets. So we know exactly how much we're paying. doesn't matter what happens to interest rates. Our debt payments, debt services, that's going to stay the same. And then the plan is to basically hold the assets for three to five years. If we can refinance once interest rates are going down, we're definitely going to do that. And then, of course, we're going to renovate the units and improve the exteriors. And before we buy anything, we always, we don't only look at reports to understand the rent comps and how much the comps, the nearby assets are charging for rents to see if there's any delta, if we can push rents. We make phone calls. The acquisitions team at Blake actually calls each and every of you know those comps to understand what's the scope of renovation, what the premiums, then we've discovered between the two properties that the gap is over $700 up to $709 when compared to other comps. So there's enough room to grow rents. I never want to be the most expensive asset. So even if I increased five, 300, whatever that is, it's still a healthy delta. And even though we believe we can push rents as much, we're not underwriting to those numbers. We're underwriting to a very, very low number of premium. And we're assuming that we're giving up some concessions just to be 
on a safe side. We usually do that, maybe not on all assets. What's the average cap rate for the current portfolio? So the average is about, I want to say 4.4%. So one is 4.75, if I'm not mistaken, the other one is 4.15. So as you can see, this is, you know, we're not in a 3% cap environment anymore. It's, you know, above four. That's for the portfolio. And I'm investing my own money in the deal. We've been waiting for those type of deals patiently in the right environment where it's, you know, there's already some of the units on both assets have been renovated and they're getting premiums. And so the plan is just to continue the proven value add plan, improve the operations and basically, you know, manage the expenses better. Basically, that's what we're doing. And we are, you know, projecting about 5% in cash on cash. And again, I'm not an investment advisor. Always should consult your CPA, your attorney, your investment advisor before you make any decision about investing. And for the portfolio, we are raising $68 million. And I believe we are about halfway there, slightly over halfway there. The first one in the portfolio, we're closing the first week of December. And the second one is last week of December. And what excites me actually about it beyond the distributions that we're going to pay monthly, this is the last year to get 100% bonus depreciation from the IRS. It's not up to us. This is basically, instead of taking a depreciation over 27 and a half years, we can do it. We hire a company to create a report called cost segregation, and then we take the entire depreciation that should have been received over 27 and a half years, we get it in year one. So investors are going to invest in November and December, and about half of the investment amount will be in the negative K1 as in the negative loss for this year, because you can get 100%. So for instance, if you invested $250,000, you can expect about $125,000 in losses from depreciation and CapEx. And so you can take advantage and offset or lower your taxable income from other passive investments. And next year, the IRS is going to turn that, take the 100% and make it 80. Next year, it's going to go down to 60 and, yeah, you know, and 40. And so we don't know what's going to happen, you know, four or five years from now. I hope it's going to stay at some capacity, but it's, it should go down significantly. So this is really the last chance to get into a deal and get 100% bonus depreciation, which is, you know, that's one of the best benefits of investing in real estate and investing in this portfolio also get those, you know, negative K1s, which, you know, everyone wants. And again, cannot promise anything. We've been doing it on every asset. We intend to do it on this asset. Again, that's the goal. On the Stonebrook deal, another question by Zion, uh, why did you decide to acquire the property on a 50% LTV? Two reasons why I did not have a chance. I have to be honest with you, the lenders, you know, we're working with Freddie Mac and right now their guidance is to keep LTV pretty low. So that's their way of making sure that no borrower is going to default on the loan. So they keep it at a pretty reasonable or reasonably low for them, low LTV. So for us, we just didn't really have a chance. And honestly, I feel much more comfortable doing that placing 50% LTV, you know, versus 75 or, you know, 80, I haven't seen 80% in a long time, because it means that it puts a lot more pressure on the property, on the cash flow to pay to the lender. And so the deal still worked. Most deals with 50% LTV do not work. Either leverage is negative or it's very, very minimal. And the fact that the deal worked 
and it's generating about 5% cash on cash. That just speaks to the strength of the deal that even with a fixed rate that is higher than the initial rate, if you take a bridge loan with a fluctuating interest rate, if the deal still works at 50%, that's a conservative good deal, at least the way that we see it at Blue Lake Capital. That was a good question. Thank you. All right. Do you exit investors out at refi or are they in the deal for the long term? We don't exit them. So when there's a refi, we return the funds to investors. The beauty about refi is that you shouldn't be paying tax on it because the source of the money, it comes from a new loan. It doesn't come from profit. It doesn't come from the rents. So if the 100% bonus depreciation was not enough to offset the income, then when you place the new debt and you return the original debt, and now the you know at lower interest rate, the valuation of the property increased. So you actually, let's say you took, for instance, a $100 million loan, and now the property is worth more. And instead of a 6% fix, you can get it at 4% or 4.5%. Then even with the same LTV or slightly higher, you can get $110 million in loan proceeds. So you take that loan, you pay to the original lender, and then you have the delta, you basically paid back to investors. And that is tax-free because the source of the payment is not the income of the property, but it's a loan. So it's tax-free. That's the idea behind a refi. So investors, you know, we keep them for the long run. We're not buying them out. We're just, unless someone wants to, you know, leave the deal if it's possible, but we are basically returning the money to investors and keep them in the deal and keep you know, making the same distributions every month. All right. The next question, what advice would you give for someone starting as a syndicator now? Is this a good time to get into real estate? I think if you have the right partner, it's always the right time. I can share with you that when I started, I heard this is not the right time to start in real estate because, you know, prices are going up. The time was in 2012, 2013, whatever that was. Right now, it's crazy that if you want to buy in Atlanta, I heard from someone saying, I used to pay 70,000, 50 to 70,000 per door. Now you're buying it at 100,000. It will never work. That's not the right time to buy. I can share with you that within 18 months after paying over 100,000 per door, we exited and net to investors, it was 41 to 42% IRR, net to investors after our fees and everything. So if it's the right deal, and if you have the right partners, if you're starting out and you need to partner with someone, that's what's going to dictate whether it's the right time for you to, to enter. There's always good deals and bad deals in every year historically. And so I think you can definitely do it as a new syndicator. You can definitely start now. But the key is to find someone who's experienced, who has gone through COVID, who has gone through cycles and partner with them, because that would make sure that you're reducing the risk of of failing if you partner with the right syndicator. So I think partnership is the key. And again, there's always a good time. When everyone was buying six months ago, I think that's actually was a dangerous time to start because you were operating based on an assumption that the party will continue forever because you don't know anything else. And you know, right now, when we know what we know, it's actually kind of a better time to do it because you understand interest rates can go up. You're focused on that. You understand that you know expenses go up. Then you focus on that. You know what to look for. You didn't really know what to look for a year ago. So 
That's basically it for new syndicators. In your opinion, what's the best way to onboard investors as a new operator? I would think partnering with a sponsor who has a track record would be adequate, but curious how you went about it. So onboarding investors, I think it's always best at first to raise before you have a deal. So meaning always keep conversations with them, keep them engaged, send them information. You know, if you read an article, send it to them, make sure that they're engaged. So the moment you have a deal, then you go back to them. You don't just start the conversation right there. And that's what I did. Basically, before I had my first deal, I was keeping in touch with investors for about six or seven months. And then once I had the new deal, but that time I've built relationships with them. So when you're asking about onboarding process for me was just keeping in touch with them, sending them emails, setting up phone calls, meeting with them in person, sending them articles that I've been writing. So when I had a deal, I was already on their minds. I already built that you know, relationship with them. And that was for me the right way to approach it rather than just have a long list of investors that I've emailed or met with once. And then the next time they hear from me, it's about a deal. That's not the right way to do it. You know, a lot of investors, they invest, you know, the money that they've set aside for their kids, for their college, you know, fund. Some of them take money out of retirement and invest with you. You want to make sure that they feel comfortable with you. It's a huge responsibility you know, it's not everyone is a family office with a hundred million, you know, in net worth. And this money is extremely important to investors. I mean, any money and any investor, but it's important to do the onboarding and, you know, focus on building relationships, building the trust, understanding what they care about and what their concerns are. So you can work on that when you do the onboarding before you even have a deal. All right. We're ready for the next question. What platforms are you using to promote your business and put yourself above other real estate people? I don't put myself above anyone else, but we're not really doing a lot of promotions. You know, basically it's mainly word of mouth. And, you know, I do write for Forbes and we have a blog on my website. We circle that and we have a newsletter that we send to investors with all the information. We don't really run specific ads. We might start doing it, you know, for the Stonebrook deal, but it's basically a combination of speaking on stages, writing for Forbes and sending the the blog I and mean, other news every week to investors. That's basically what we do. I think again, because investors, you know, invest their college fund, their kids' tuition, you know, college fund, their retirement fund. It's not so much about a popping come invest with us. It has to be more personal. It has to be a bit different. We're not selling t-shirts here. That's how we approach it. Okay. Any other questions that we have? I think we have a few more. Did you enjoy practicing law? (laughs) Well, I'm not an attorney anymore. And listen, I have a lot of respect for attorneys. Obviously, you know, a lot of them are my investors. That's how I started my way. I actually came from an extremely humble, you know, background. And I was the poorest kid on the block. I was picked on for being poor. I was reminded that almost on a daily basis. And for me, I said, hey, what's the best way for me to not be poor anymore? Because I understood that I was poor at a very early age because kids can be very direct many times. And so being an attorney was the only way for me. You know, I, I only had my brains. I didn't have any, you know, support system, financially speaking, to start a big business, to do anything. I knew I wanted to be in real estate, but I thought I needed more money. I don't know how to buy assets without money. And so I became a real estate attorney. 
I actually enjoyed understanding you know, how real estate works from the JV structures and deals because I was creating those structures for my clients. But at some point I said, you know what? I feel like I'm missing something here. I want to be on the other side. I remember thinking we were sitting at a roundtable discussion with some of the clients talking about this project they were building in Eastern Europe, which was a beautiful community. And I was, I remember the table was round. It was kind of dark wood. And I was thinking, I'm on the wrong side of this table. We were sitting, me and maybe five other attorneys, and there was two people from the development company. And I was thinking, I was back in Israel, I was thinking, I need to be on the other side. I need to be there buying assets, building things, you know, and and not drafting the contracts because I felt that it was more exciting for me to be on the other side. And it took me years to get there, you know, through becoming a property manager. And then moving to the States, going to business school, and then starting the company. It took me a while to get here. So honestly, I did enjoy it to an extent. And then at some point, you know, I said, this is not for me. I need to be where the action is. I want to see the assets. I want to talk to investors. I want to do things that are much more actually time consuming. Obviously, it's a much harder work than drafting the contracts and leading the partnerships. But that's what I chose to do. And I never looked back. So. Let's see. Do you primarily use a peri pref model? So a peri pref model. So peri meaning if you know somebody owns, let's say, 5% of the asset, then they get 5% of the cash. And investors who own 95% get 95% of the cash of the income. At Blue Lake, we have a different kind of model. So we basically, if there's, let's say, a 6% PREF, it means that the first 6% the first money that comes from that the property generates every year, first and foremost, goes to investors. And that's what we did on the Stonebrook portfolio. We basically said every year for the five years we're going to hold the asset, you are going to get paid. Well, the payment is, you know, we projected at 5%, but we said 6% is the PREF, meaning we are getting, as operators and managers, we're getting zero unless you are making 6% every year. So we do believe that 5% current is more reasonable. And then the delta 1% is going to be accrued for next year and next year until we're able to pay it. And so we don't go peri because we go 0-100, meaning up to 6% every year to investors. So if you invested $100,000 until you get your 6%, $6,000 every year times you know five, so 30,000, we do not get anything. 100% goes to investors. And I'm also investing as a passive investor in those deals. So the same terms. And then after that, there's a waterfall of 70-30 up to, I believe, 12% or 11% IRR, which means that the first kind of step in the waterfall is the 6% PREF. Everyone got their 6% PREF. The next money coming in is distributed between investors and the operator, Blue Lake, 70 30, 70% goes to investors, 30% goes to us, up to, if I'm not mistaken, 11 or 12% IRR. Once we're hitting that hurdle, then we go to 50 50. So we don't really do peri pursue. It's a model that is intended to incentivize us to basically produce more you know, cash flow and to excel in operating the asset. And then in addition, the first money that comes from the property goes to investors. There's no question about it. We get zero 
we don't get anything unless from the cash flow, unless investors are paid 6% PREF. When it comes to the equity split, it's 0-100. Okay. What are your goals for your company over the next 12 to 18 months? Great question. So I'm, I'm a pretty ambitious person. So for us, we are going to enroll next year our PREF equity fund, and we're going to start another equity fund as well. So we're closing. We have a $100 million fund called Rev Fund. We're going to close it this year and then start those two funds next year. And then next year, we're actually going to focus on working also, in addition to working with our investors, like to working with family offices and with institutions, you know, such as pension funds, endowments, etc. And so, you know, that's one of the goals. You know, we do have our headquarters is outside of Boston. We have another office in Los Angeles. And, you know, the goals for the next year, year and a half is to keep hiring. You know, we're doing everything in-house. We have acquisitions, asset management, investor relations, marketing, everything in-house. So the plan is also to grow the teams and, you know, grow the portfolio as well. But it's okay if we don't hit the portfolio target if we cannot find the right deals. I can share with you that we had a goal to buy a certain amount of units this year. And we fell short because there were not enough assets in the market that hit the projected you know, returns of what we wanted to show to investors. And we were not willing to be aggressive in our underwriting. And I'm okay with not hitting that target because I want to make sure that we, if we are buying, we are buying right. And we're buying the right markets. We're buying the right assets, even if it means that we're buying slower and fewer you know, units than we initially wanted. And that's totally fine. All right. I think we're just about done. Great questions. And I know interest rates, you know, is on everyone's minds right now. So I just want to wrap it up with one more thought about interest rates. If you think about it, and we have, I took a long and hard kind of conversation with myself and said, should we keep buying? And I do believe that we should, because now that we know that the major risk is rising interest rates, we can address it by you know, taking a fixed rate loan to mitigate that risk. It's actually more risky to buy when you're not sure when the recession is going to come and is it going to be, you know, tenants are going to leave and not pay rents or it's going to be interest rate or it's going to be something else that is going to impact the investment. And so knowing where the risk is coming from so you can mitigate it right away. We know now more than we did three months ago, six months ago, 12 months ago. And so now that we know what the major risk factor is and we know how to mitigate it by putting low leverage debt at a fixed rate, this is how we make sure that the deals are being done, that we're buying the right deals, that we're mitigating you know, the risk and just sitting on the sidelines and you know, putting money in the account that can actually lose seven, eight, eight and a half percent because of inflation. Again, this is that's a decision that I decided not to make and actually invest, keep investing in real estate. But, you know, real estate is still going, I think interest rates are still going to go up a little bit. But once you get a fixed rate, then that's, it's basically going to make sure that the rising interest rates, they're not going to impact your deal and your underwriting. So conservative underwriting, fixed rate, low LTV, these are the things that we are doing to make sure that we still buy the right deals, you know, in today's environment. 
So I appreciate your, you know, being here and we're going to have a recording and send it to our investors. So if you want to join our newsletter or if you want to talk about the Stonebrook portfolio, we still have some room there right now. You can visit us at bluelake-capital.com. There's kind of uh, an area where you can uh, click on invest or you can reach out directly to us info at bluelake-capital.com. We're happy to set up a call with you or answer any questions. And yeah, so for all the investors out there, I hope that your investments are doing well. And if you want to talk about kind of bounce some ideas, happy to do that. Also, we have a great investor relations team that can also speak with you. And, you know, that's it for today. I hope that was helpful for some of you uh, kind of to share what we see on our end as sponsors and kind of talk a little bit about the market in general, real estate and the environment that we're in today. Have a great week. It's Wednesday. It's a great day. And, you know, just I personally feel grateful to be here in a great country that, you know, I'm very happy to be here. And just remember that with everything that is is happening, the fact that we are in a position to even consider investing means that, you know, we're blessed to be able to make that decision to be even thinking about, you know, having the ability to think about that. So I always try to take things, you know, into perspective. Thank you so much. And thank you, Katrina. I appreciate it. All right. Take care, everyone. Have a good week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.